0: Um, And this week we have finally seen the conclusion, finally. The politicians have used millions of words, literally millions of words, as they communicated to the electorate and tried to persuade us how we should cast our votes in the election. What's quite interesting now is that some of those words have a little bit of a bite in them. The people who spoke them or wrote them are having to backtrack a little bit. Only yesterday I read some words that had been written on Facebook, a dangerous medium young people, if ever there was one. And I'll put that on the Facebook entry tonight. Uh, The new Secretary of State for Scotland had written some words about his new coalition partners that have caused him a little bit of embarrassment. And perhaps the moment of the week among many moments of the week was the time in the Downing Street Garden at the press conference when our new Prime Minister was challenged about very rude words he had said about our new Deputy Prime Minister. Yet we can all have a chuckle as we watch politicians squirm, as we listen to how they get out of what they really meant to say. But words have a consequence so I want us tonight to consider words which have much greater importance and which have a much greater consequence than anything that politicians may have to say now before we sit back and relax in our pews or as we watch our tv screens laughing at the the, uh, discomfort of others let us be cautious about our own words And to help us to concentrate our minds and our hearts, uh, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. The third Gospel, Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And we're going to read just four verses, verses 46 to 49. And if you need the page number for the Pew Bible, it is 1035. Luke 6, verse 46. And it is Jesus who is speaking. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house that could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Amen. It's God's word. The verses that we've just read tonight are extremely familiar to anyone who has even a cursory knowledge of the New Testament. I suspect if you'd asked most of the children who attended our youngest Sunday school class this morning, the three four-year-olds, did they know about this story? Most of them would have answered in the affirmative. Very well-known story, but yet there's a danger that familiarity can breed much contempt, especially when it comes to... To the words of Jesus. So let's pay particular attention to these words because they are the words of Jesus. Let's have a little bit of background. We've only read four verses out of a whole gospel, so where does it fit into the, the gospel? Well, if you go back earlier in chapter 6, if you look at verse 17, we really have the start of what is a, a sermon that was delivered by Jesus. So the words that we have looked at are right at the end of a relatively long sermon. But if we go back to verse 17, we can actually have a little bit of an idea who was there that day. Who were the people that were listening to these words? And there were four groups of people that we can identify. In verse 17, we read of a group of people called them. You need to refer back further. And we find out that they were the apostles, the 12 special men set apart by Jesus to assist him in teaching this wonderful new message and who then had a responsibility after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus of taking the gospel into the world. So those 12 men were there. We also find in verse 17 that there was a large crowd of his disciples. A phrase which is used throughout the gospels, a group variable in number, varying in enthusiasm for the teaching of Jesus. A nameless group that followed him from place to place, but a group who wanted to hear what he had to say. Then we read in verse eighteen of another uh, sorry verse seventeen of another two groups of people. There was a great number of people from all over Judea from Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the capital. Now at this stage, Luke in his gospel had not mentioned any visits that the adult Jesus had made to Jerusalem or the surrounding area. But we know from the other gospel writers that Jesus had a little bit of fame to some, infamy to others. And there were some concerns starting to develop about this rural chap and what he was teaching. The ruling elite had an interest in finding out what was going on. So there were some people from Jerusalem. But we also find in verse 17 that there was a group of people from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, most likely a group of Gentiles, Probably heard who this man was doing wonderful things. What's the fuss about? We need to go and have a look, find out what's going on. So we can see that the group of people who are here listening to the words of Jesus are a very wide ranging group. Different regions, different social groupings, different religious backgrounds, different levels of enthusiasm, but yet they were there to find out a little bit more. But why were they there? Well, Verse 18 and 19 gives us a little bit more information as to why the crowd had gathered. Verse 18 says that some wanted to hear him. They'd come to hear him. They wanted to listen to his new teaching. Verse 18 also tells us that some people there wanted to be cured of their diseases. Verse 19, some wanted to be cured of evil spirits. Some simply wanted to touch him. Because they had heard, if you touch him, He would heal them. Now the scene was probably a little bit chaotic. I suspect the Jews would not really have wanted to sit beside the Gentiles. The Gentiles wouldn't have wanted to sit beside the Jews. The Jewish men wouldn't have wanted to sit with the Jewish women. The women probably wanted to be at the front. And battling to get in front of them were the people who wanted healed. But no matter where they were from, no matter their background... They were there to hear Jesus preach what is now known as the Sermon on the Plain. That's the context, that's the overall picture that we're looking at, this disparate group of people coming together to hear Jesus teach. Well, the words that we read earlier were the words that Jesus spoke right at the end of a sermon. And Jesus hit them with a bit of a bombshell. There was no simple conclusion. There was no feel-good message for all the people who had turned up. There was no particular encouragement for those who were finding life a bit tough. But rather, Jesus hit his audience with a very direct question and a short story to back it up. So what was the question that Jesus asked? Verse 46. We've already read it. Let's read it again. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Now that is pretty much to the point. And in one sense, there's not really a great need for a huge amount of discussion. But Jesus is saying one thing to all the people who had gathered together, all the people who had come for different reasons. He said, you, the people, are calling me Lord. That means you, the people who are here, are giving me a place of honor. That means you the people are attributing to me some special significance in your life if that's the case that would suggest that you the people should pay some attention to the words that i'm saying it's quite noticeable that jesus is not drawing any attention to himself he's not making any claim of lordship he's just repeating the words that others have said you are calling me lord This is a voluntary confession on the lips of the crowd who had gathered. They're giving Jesus a special place. But yet, there was a fundamental flaw in that confession. You say that I'm Lord. But what do you do? You ignore everything that I tell you. And tonight, we have to accept that you can't have one without the other. Now it was usual for Jesus as he taught the crowds, all these people gathered together, to teach with a simple illustration, to emphasize and perhaps re-emphasize the lesson that he was trying to impress on the people who were there. And then Jesus tells the story that we've read that is so familiar even to children but yet a story which has a huge degree of familiarity. So let's be careful in how we think about this story because it's so easy to pass over the actual words that Jesus has spoken. Take away from it what we think he said rather than concentrating on what he actually did say. So after Jesus' question, he restates the message in this way. He says, I want to show you what it's like. Someone who hears my words and then puts them into practice this man is a listening man he hears what i have to say then he goes away and then he does exactly what i told him to do that's the description that's the man described by jesus here so what was the illustration what was it what was it like in practice well the man's described as someone who goes away to undertake a building project He's building a house, somewhere to live, a noble task. So what does the man do? Well, he has a look at the place where he's building. And what does he do? He starts to dig. Now, I thought when you're looking at a building, you look at putting things up. But no, this man starts to dig. He keeps digging. And when he's tired of digging, he digs some more. And he only stopped digging when he hit rock. That was the sign for the man to stop digging because he knew that he could now start to build his house with some confidence, that he could build his house on a sure foundation. The house was built on and into the foundation of the rock. And that's the simple description that Jesus gives us of this man, the man who hears what Jesus has to say and then puts it into practice. But as we all know, I presume we all know, there's another man in the story and he's described as someone who also hears Jesus' words. But there's a difference this time and this man has a slightly different approach. He goes away but he doesn't put them into practice. Now in one sense this man is not really any different from the other because what's he trying to do? He's trying to build a house somewhere for him, perhaps a family to live He's undertaken a similar building project but his project management style is a wee bit different because what does he do? He starts to build. He wants to get the house finished as soon as possible so they can live in it and get maximum benefit from it. Now here we have the two men building two houses in two completely different ways. And by the time the slower builder completes his project they've both Achieved what they set out to achieve. The job's been done. The houses have been built. They can sit back and enjoy the views. They can invite their friends around for dinner. Perhaps they can even discuss with each other how they built the houses. But then it all changes because the flood comes, the waters break their banks. And the raging torrents target whatever lies in their path. With two outcomes. The first man, the man with the deeply dug foundations, can sit in his house securely, knowing that the house is not going to collapse. It was unshakable, the house was firm wasn't going to budge because it was built on deep secure foundations but what about the second house well that was a wee bit of a disaster the rapidly built house with no foundations is swept away by the torrent as the ESV puts it the ruin of that house was great so with two houses and with two outcomes What was the difference well the title of tonight's message is deep foundations and the difference is deep foundations so let's have a a little closer look at these verses and try and understand what it means to have deep foundations and the first thing i want us to look at is the construction of the deep foundations returning briefly and, and very briefly because i know it annoys so many of you um to the never-ending flow of words from the politicians. Um, Not only did they try and persuade us that we should just put our X beside their names in the ballot papers, but they actually gave us quite a lot of reasons why we should vote for them. Now, I might be looking at this a wee bit simply, but I I think the the outcome of the TV debates was, uh, have the experience, time for change, time for big change. That's what it seemed to be the message that they were getting across, and it was hammered home time after time at press conferences and the numer- numerous mailings that we got through the post, all the emails that were flying about, Facebook, if you were into that. But it is important that we actually think behind the reasons why it is we want to vote for someone. So for politicians to set out their reasoning why we should vote for them, well, that's a good thing. Whether we believe them or not, That's a different story. But when it comes to paying attention to any person, any person, any walk of life, then we really have to think for the reasons why that person should get our attention. And it's not really any different when we think about Jesus. His question was, if you call me Lord, why are you not obeying my teaching? There are many today who will claim that Jesus is a great teacher. I suspect many of those who make that claim have probably never read much of what he said. But Jesus is recognizing in his question, the question that he asked to the crowd, that there were people who will give him the title of Lord. But for his words to have any impact on that crowd, then he must have an impact. No one will ever pay attention to any potential leader in any aspect of life unless that person demonstrates that they're credible. Why should the words of Jesus be regarded as a strong foundation for life? Why should anyone want to dig deep on the basis of obeying what Jesus had to say? Well, Luke, the writer of this gospel, gives us lots of clues, not just in this chapter, but in also some of the other chapters that he's written round about this incident. So let's think about the authority of Jesus. What claims does he have to, on our lives that we should be listening to him? Well, first of all, we can think that authority is demonstrated in the power that Jesus had. We've already looked at the verses at the start of this sermon that indicated that Jesus had some unusual great power. He was able to heal people. He was able to cure them of evil spirits. People recognized that if they touched them, they would be healed. But this was not an isolated incident recorded by Luke. He refers to other situations where people have made comment about the power that jesus had in luke 4:36, it says with authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out jesus was able to demonstrate his power over evil spirits by dismissing them from a man without any injury jesus had authority over the spiritual world in luke 5 and 9 we read peter and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken Peter and his companions, experienced local fishermen, knew how to catch fish. They hadn't caught anything all night. Jesus said, cast your nets out again. And what did they get? So many fish they couldn't bring them in. With one command, Jesus was able to express his power over the natural world. Luke 5 and 26, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. Why was that? because they'd just seen Jesus cure a paralyzed man with the words, take up your mat and go home. This was no ordinary man. He had power. But we also see that Jesus' authority was demonstrated in his teaching. Luke has already recorded for us some responses that people made when they'd heard Jesus speak. In Luke 2.47 we read, everyone who heard him was astonished at his understanding and his answers this is the 12 year old jesus 12 year old jesus debating with the religious leaders of the nation in the temple area what did they find people were astonished at what he was saying in luke 4 22 we read they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips this was people from his hometown. They responded differently a few moments later when they wanted to try and kill him. But initially, they were amazed. There was something in his teaching that was different. There was something in his teaching that had authority. And even his enemies recognized that authority. But there's more. We also see that there's authority demonstrated in the person of Jesus. We've already seen Luke forty six it's thirty-six and, and people recognized that it was Jesus' authority alongside his power that caused the evil spirits to come out of the man. This man was different. The demons in that account said these words What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons could recognize that Jesus was God's holy one. Jesus, the person had authority but luke records for us one great contrast towards the end of of chapter six we see this question why do you call me lord lord and not do what i say if we go straight into the next chapter we find an incident that sets out what it really means to understand that jesus had authority In Luke chapter 7, a Roman centurion had a a servant who was critically ill at the point of death. And he asked for Jesus to come to heal the servant. As Jesus approached the house, the centurion sent another message and said, Don't come to the house. I'm not worthy. But then he says, I'm a centurion. I'm someone who has authority. If I want one of my underlings to go and carry out something, I just say, go and do it it'll be done my authority says as soon as i give the command the command is carried out the centurion says that he's unworthy to have jesus in his house but all he is asking is that jesus gives the command to heal his servant Perhaps the centurion's attitude could be summarized by one sentence. He says, I have authority over military and political affairs, but you, Jesus, have a command over so much more. You have the authority. Give the command, and my servant will be healed. Let's think about that contrast. In chapter 6, Jesus is asking the crowd, Where's your obedience? You're calling me Lord, but you don't do the things that I do. And here in chapter 7, immediately afterwards, we've got this Roman centurion saying, I have authority. I know what it means to issue orders. I know what it means for people to do what they're told. And he asks Jesus to heal. Jesus commends the centurion for having that degree of faith that is absent from so many who are in Israel. And he heals the servant from a distance doesn't even need to see him and again Jesus demonstrates his authority so we can see from this chapter that Je- and, and from other aspects of Luke's writings that Jesus was a man who had authority but alongside that we have to think about the words of Jesus not only the authority of Jesus but the words of Jesus let's think again about the illustration that he gives us If you hear my words, go away and obey them. Then you're like a man who, when building a house, takes time to construct deep foundations. You dig as deep as you need to get in order that you have the solid ground on which you can build your house. If you don't have the solid ground, if you don't hit the rock, you have to keep on digging. Now, there are two very simple implications of what jesus has to say first of all we must hear the words we must hear the words or in our case we must read the words it's wonderful that we have been given so much more than one sermon from luke chapter 6 we have been given a full and complete revelation from god as to what his expectations of us are But how do we know what those expectations are until we actually open the pages and start to read? We don't know what they are until we start to listen. Ignorance is not really an excuse. How can we call him Lord, Lord, if we don't know what his words are? Never mind, obey them. Which is the second aspect. We must obey them. Not only do we hear them, we must obey The Roman centurion has given us that example of what it means to obey the commands. Could you imagine the consequences for those Roman slaves if they had said, yep, you're my lord, the centurion, but I'm not going to do what you tell me. I think it might have been a rather painful and slow end for them. They recognized the authority and they did it. They carried out the commands so for this crowd listening to jesus for us reading these words tonight is it acceptable for us to say lord lord and then ignore what he asks his words are important we have to obey them as i've mentioned this little subsection comes right at the end of a sermon And Jesus is referring to words that he's already preached during that sermon. Now, we don't have time to look at any of these words in great detail. There are at least four other sermons, and it would be a long night. So we can't look at them in detail, but let's very briefly just look at a number of things with no comment. And these are the words that Jesus is saying. And he said, you call me Lord? Do you do what I ask you to do? Verse 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. Verse 35, love your enemies. Verse 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Verse 37, do not judge, do not condemn, forgive. Verse 38, Give. So, let me ask you a question. What's your score on your report card? How's your obedience factor? Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and do not do what he says? It's sad as Jesus preaches these words to the crowd assembled, that he has to describe them to them that whatever comes out of the mouth reflects what's in the heart. People who would call him Lord, Lord, but yet there were so many different things in the heart. Verse 45, if you need that as a reference. There's a Puritan writer, vividly contrasts the outpouring of good and evil hearts using some of the images that have been taken from this sermon. He says, When blindness and boldness, ignorance and arrogance, weakness and willfulness meet together in men, it renders them odious to God, burdensome in society, dangerous in their counsels, disturbers of better purposes, intractable and incapable of better direction, miserable in the issue. Where Christ shows his gracious power in weakness... He does it by letting men understand themselves so far as to breed humility and magnify God's love to them. So as we think about obeying the words that Jesus has spoken, do our lives breed humility and magnify God's love by our our obedience to his commands? Or are we odious to God? burdensome in society. So how's your digging? How are your foundations? Are they deep? Have you hit any rock yet? Have the commands of Jesus found a secure, resting place in your heart? Are we compelled to do them? But there's an encouragement in this parable because The first man, the man that started work on the foundations, he didn't hit foundations at first. He had to dig. And he had to keep digging. And he had to keep digging and keep digging and keep digging digging until he hit the rock. Until he had the firm foundation. So don't give up. Keep digging. Keep obeying the words of Jesus. So while it's important to think about the construction of the foundations it's also important to think about the consequences of those same deep foundations. When we bought our current home, um, I was going to say we, but it really wasn't we. It didn't have much to do with this. Um, my wife could see the potential of the house. And she thought, in her wisdom, that one of the great things we could do would be to build a conservatory when we, when we bought the house so that we can sit out, enjoy the long summer nights watching the rain. So eventually we got the plans, got an agreement, got planning permission, and the work started. Now it was quite interesting for me to come home from work every night to see how this conservatory was was going. And to be honest, I thought that the two guys that were building it were having a wee bit of a laugh, because... On the first night there was a big hole on the second night there was a bigger hole and for two weeks that hole kept getting bigger and to be honest that hole did not bear much resemblance to the conservatory that we had been promised i was getting a little bit impatient but then there was one night i came home and there was a building there it had gone up really quickly But the reason why they had to wait was because they needed firm foundations. And within a couple of days after that, the conservatory was there. It was finished, delivered as promised, and paid for. The majority of the work was not actually spent in putting the conservatory up. The majority of the work was ensuring that the foundations were dug properly. They wanted to make sure that that building was going to be secure. Now we look out onto the Pentlands and believe me, in the middle of winter when you've got the wind coming off the hills, bringing in the rain, I'm glad that they spent time digging the foundations and making sure that the hole was big enough so that the conservatory would not fall down when the storm came. Now Our verses tonight illustrate the consequences of having deep foundations what happens when the storm comes? The waters rise, the flood comes. The riverbanks break. Homes are under attack from the rising water. But the man who built his house on the firm foundations can rest secure. His property safe. It's not going anywhere. It can withstand that rising water. The torrent is not going to shake it. But what a sad contrast for the other man torrents struck the house and the lack of building quality resulted in a disaster. The house collapses and the destruction is complete. We've all seen pictures of this on television. Was it Madeira that had the most recent floods? As we watched cars being swept down streets into the sea? As we watched people hanging on for grim life? Fear in their faces because of the torrent that was raging about them. The floods bring catastrophe. So, what do we end up with? We end up with one house standing firm, solid foundations, immovable. We end up with another house swept away in pieces. A disaster. So what does the storm represent? Well, I think there are two aspects that we need to consider. First of all, storms do represent the trials of life. The verse says when a flood came, which suggests that there was an inevitability, that there was going to be a storm, there was going to be a flood, that the houses were going to be in danger. And for all of us, no matter what stage in life we are, there is an inevitability that there will be storms. For some of you young people sitting up at the back tonight, without a care in the world, you're sitting exams, the storm may be around the corner. Some of you students looking for life after graduation, economic circumstances may say that the job you've craved for so long doesn't exist all of us have hopes and plans for the future but those dreams can be shattered in an instant some of you older folks perhaps some of you not that old recognize that the mind and the body are becoming a little bit frail life in the future is going to be tough physically Some of you might be having financial uncertainty, career hopes and dreams shattered. And some of you just might be finding life tough. Everything that you have to face is difficulty. So there are storms. They do come. And the question is, do you have the foundation that allows you to deal with them? Is your life built on obedience to the words of Jesus Christ? Can you call him Lord? Lord? lord in the knowledge that you actually put into practice what he commands or is your house in ruins it's fallen apart the storms hit you have no foundation you just decided to build a house with no digging do you pay lip service to jesus christ you can sing the songs we can all sing the songs lord lord But yet, obedience is some far-off thought that never captures our attention. Are the words that Jesus spoke in this sermon absent from your life? Sometimes there's a terrible despair for people when storms hit. They can blame others. They can blame circumstances. They can blame God. People can fall apart so easily. But tonight, I don't want to offer criticism. I want to offer you some hope. And the hope is start digging. There's no special three point plan for success. Start digging. Come to God's Word, find out what Jesus is commanding us to do, all of it, and start obeying. But there is a second representation, I'm sure in the picture of the storm. We read this morning about the flood that captured the Egyptians, how that nation was destroyed. Their military might was taken when the Red Sea crashed in round about them. Moses sang, the deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. David read earlier for us from Ezekiel some pretty harsh words about the false prophets who were effectively washed away with their flimsy building think about noah the flood brought judgment on the whole earth floods in the bible do not represent good news they represent bad news and there is a clear picture of a final judgment that we all must face one day we'll have no second chance One day there will be no opportunity to start building again. We will stand before an almighty God and our foundation will be tested for one last time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the basis on which we're going to be tested. If we have some other foundation... We might as well forget about it. It'll be destroyed. So what's the key? Obey. Put into practice what I've told you. Let's take our Bible. Let's read it. Let's apply it. Let's think about it. And let's build our lives on obedience to it. We've met again tonight. We've had the opportunity of reading Old Testament and New Testament. We have been able to read the words of jesus christ can i encourage you to go home read the sermon no more than 10 minutes reading go home and read it think about his words and for some reason god in his graciousness has given us another opportunity to hear his words so how do we go away from here tonight let's dig let's dig as individuals let's dig as a church Let's obey. Put his words into practice. Our closing hymn.